Well, as we've seen often in recent years, um, you have the opportunity, in fact, we almost expect it, that every year a few times we will see some public personality say something that gets them into trouble. Sometimes just a single sentence can end a career. So you have a comedian who stopped in the middle of a routine uh, to uh, uh, speak back to a heckler, ended up uttering a, a racial slur, and now no longer can get any gigs. Or a politician believing What he is saying is to a private audience, and unfortunately, at least for him, it was taped, and something that he said insulted half the voting American population. Or a sports reporter who tries to be a little bit clever, but instead crosses a line, unfairly insults an athlete, and loses his or her job. And this kind of thing happens on a regular basis. And whenever it happens, what do we do? We say, how could they be so stupid? Except, sometimes we do exactly the same thing. We say things that we wish we could have back. We may say them out of frustration or anger or jealousy, sometimes for no good reason at all. And we say something that gets us in trouble. We hurt or offend or disgust someone, sometimes someone we care deeply about, and we do anything to rewind the tape and get that whatever we said back. But we can't, it's gone. All of us have had the experience of writing an email and sending it and then immediately regretting that we've sent it. And that's often the way it is with our words. In recent weeks, we've been looking at a letter in the New Testament that was written by James. James was the brother of Jesus, and he was one of the leaders of the early Christian church. And he wrote to a number of different leaders in churches throughout the ancient world. Um, This letter, which comes down to us, and it's just called simply James after the one who wrote it. Now, we've been calling this series A Good Life, and this is to distinguish from the good life, which is a materialistic way of thinking about the world. And we're talking about something that James is pointing to, a wise way to live that goes well beyond just the materialistic things that we have. James believes that there are habits that if put into practice will lead to a better, more fulfilling way of life. Now, in recent weeks, I've mentioned uh, several times that James, while he is very practical, can also be surprisingly challenging and hard. And tonight's text is no exception. In James chapter three, he starts his reflections on public speech this way, and it's in James chapter three, verse one. If you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, it's on 1842, page 1842, or you can follow along with the words on the screen. And here's the way he starts. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, James, again, was writing to people who were in churches scattered throughout the ancient Near East. The church at the time was small. It was socially and politically insignificant. Historians tell us that the earliest churches didn't have buildings or church staffs, not that those things are bad. They just didn't have them. Um, And these relatively small church communities, which often met in homes um, or in some other small public place, were led by bivocational pastors who worked during the day and did this around the edges of their lives. And James was very concerned about the quality of the leadership in these churches. So it's here he's reminding that those who are leading these communities need to take it very seriously what they say, how they teach, the tone, making certain that what they say is true and useful. Now, while James is directly addressing the leaders of these churches that he was writing to, I think the principle that he lays out here can be applied more broadly. And that is that any person in a position of authority must be careful in what they say and what they teach and how they say what they say as well. 
The more influence we have, the more responsibility we have for what we say. And sometimes it seems that today the temptation is to flip this whole in the other direction. At times it seems that those in positions of great authority feel they have the freedom to say whatever they want. And those with little power find themselves watching every single word. As we'll see in a moment, James doesn't give the powerless or the powerful a free pass. He says we need to be all careful about what we say. But James is telling those of us in leadership, particularly those who are teachers, that we'll be judged by a higher standard. And I would add that all leaders, not just teachers, are held to a similarly high standard. So whether you're leading in politics or business or education or healthcare or entertainment or in religion, you're accountable because of the amount of influence that you can have over others. Some today in positions of authority fall prey to a lie, and that lie is that the rules that apply to others simply don't apply to you. And I'm sure it wouldn't take us more than a nanosecond to think of people in high places who feel by virtue of their position and their authority that they can get away with things that people further down the organization cannot. Unfortunately, that is often evident in the way they use words, or I should say even the way we use words, because many of us have much more power and authority than we imagine. And so we need to be careful, just as James is encouraging these leaders to be careful. So this first verse if I could summarize the principle James wants us to understand, is that we're responsible for what we say, especially if we're placed in a position of authority. We're responsible, James says, but it's also not easy to control what we say. And so in verse two, he says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. James is saying that it's extremely difficult, and actually he says it's impossible for us to control everything that we say. If we could, we'd be practically perfect. Now, I wanna skip ahead because he comes back to this particular idea in verses seven and eight, and he compares the difficulty of controlling our speech to the challenge of taming animals. It's an interesting comparison in verses seven and eight. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. Just go to the zoo, SeaWorld, whatever. You can see this going on. But he says, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So he's really saying humans have tamed all kinds of wild animals. Any of you that have pets have probably tamed in one way or another that pet. And at times they're unpredictable, uncontrollable, even dangerous animals, and yet we're able through conditioning to help train them. So isn't it ironic that we can train even dangerous animals and we can't even control what we say? Instead, whether we like it or not, we're prone to say hurtful and harmful things. He says it's like a poison that just gushes out from within. On occasion, I have, I will confess, have said things that I shouldn't, and often they've been maybe insensitive things or occasionally even cruel, and my excuse is I slipped. I'm sorry. You know, it just kind of bubbled out. And James isn't having that. He's saying, you don't slip. You have lost, you've let down your guard. Your facade has slipped. It's actually inside of you and you just let it come out. Your true character is being revealed in those moments when you make mistakes. So he's not letting us off the hook. So he says it's difficult, if not impossible, to control everything that we say. Now I skipped verses three to six and in these verses what he does is he uses three different metaphors to talk about the power of words. Let me just read what he has to say here. He says, when we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. 
Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So in quick succession, he uses three metaphors. And let's just uh, point first to the first two because I think they make a similar point. And that is that something small, like the bit in the mouth of a horse or the rudder of a ship, has an impact disproportionate to its size. It control the whole thing, as large as it may be. In fact, it determines the trajectory or the, the direction of the larger uh, body. So our tongues may be small in comparison to our bodies, but they have great power and they shape the direction of our lives. So when the tongue is unrestrained, then the whole human body is uncontrollable as well. And then he gives this third metaphor, this metaphor of fire, comparing words we use to, the, to fire. And words like fire can be used for great good. And so you can imagine there are lots of uses for fire that are appropriate, keeps us warm, comfortable, and secure. But used carelessly, he's saying that fire can destroy things and it can destroy lives. In other words, he's highlighting the destructive power and potential of the words that we say. So sparks like tongues are dangerous. And just as we all each season here in the summer, a dry forest with just a small spark can suddenly uh, be set ablaze and thousands of acres can be burned off because of a small spark. And so too can a few careless words set a metaphorical fire. In fact, he says the whole course of our lives can be shaped by just a few words. So often what we do is we, we kind of think that, oh, this is a little bit of harmless gossip or that this rumor that we're spreading won't hurt anyone or that everyone really understands our passion when really what they're thinking is this person can't control their temper. It only takes one unguarded moment, for example, to tear down the confidence of a child, to hurt the feelings of a spouse or destroy the reputation of a coworker. We can even lose a job because of what we say. And ultimately, James says, it will destroy you spiritually. So that means that even the smallest statement can do great damage. With that, James explains what makes the difference between when good words come out and when bad words come out. What is it that makes the difference? And this is the way he describes this in verses nine to 12. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So in stark language, what he's saying here is that, and it's probably something we all understand, and that is that when we speak, we can do great good or great damage. And what comes out of our mouth can either praise God or it can curse a human being. He says this isn't right. And then he tells us what tips the balance between these two. Why is it that sometimes we say things that are the right kinds of things to say and sometimes we don't? He says what helps us use words in good and constructive ways depends on what's inside of us. So our inner life determines whether or not we say words that are healthy and good or words that are, are wrong. If the inner life's good, then what comes out will be good as well. If the inside is dark, if our hearts are dark, then what comes out will be dark as well. 
I mentioned at the beginning that James was the brother of Jesus, and maybe he was thinking of something Jesus said when he wrote these words. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, and I'm gonna paraphrase here, he said, your words reveal what's in your hearts. Good people bring good things out of their hearts, but evil people bring evil things out of their hearts. That's why it's so important to cultivate a relationship with God. When we know God, he changes us from the inside out, and there's a power that takes place and and cleanses us from inside, gives us the kinds of of a heart for others and helps us to restrain the things that we should not say. When we read the Bible, for example, uh, it gives us wisdom, helps us gain insight, shows us the places where we need to fix perhaps the things in our lives, the attitudes and the feelings and uh, tendencies that we have in our lives that are inappropriate. The closer we are to God, the more our speech will improve. If we wanna do a better job in what we say, then we need to ask God to change our hearts. I was thinking this week back to my childhood. I had a thin skin when I was a kid. Um, anybody in the neighborhood could say something and it would just uh, devastate me. And I think maybe some of you have experienced that as well. I was born in Japan um, 13 years after the end of World War II. And I was raised in a time when there was still lingering prejudice against the Japanese. And so some of the kids at school called me Johnny the Jap. And that really hurt. Now, that was an awful thing then. It's an awful thing now to say, but that was something that kids said. I was also really small for my age. Uh, when I was a fresh, or a sophomore in high school, I was five foot three. In fact, I continued to grow even after high school, so I was just a little bit smaller than all the other kids, and the kids would make fun of me. So every time that I hear someone talk about childhood as a time of innocence, I think that either they were raised as only children in neighborhoods with no kids or they have blocked forever all of their childhood memories because kids can be extremely cruel to one another. I remember being told by someone when all of that was going on, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And I have come to believe that that's exactly the opposite. You know, we recover pretty quickly from physical injuries, but words can be lingering in the way that they hurt us. Words can make a marriage fail or succeed. Words can demoralize an employee. But words can also do great good. They can inspire us to do great things or tear us down and make us feel worthless. Words are powerful for good or for ill. And in what James is telling us, he says that the words that we use depend upon the quality of our hearts. If we have a good heart, good words tend to come out. If we have an evil heart, it will be evil words that we tend to speak. Now, after all of this, one of the conclusions that we may try to reach is that we should just say as little as possible. In fact, in one of the questions in the study guide that we handed out at the beginning of this series, it asks the question, should we just stop talking altogether? And as a talker, it's sometimes been a good idea if I would keep my mouth shut. Silence can be a good thing. Um, we shouldn't say everything that we're thinking, for example. But one wise person has said, I've often regretted my speech, but I've seldom regretted my silence. But James, I think, would say, that's a naive and maybe a simplistic way of responding to the fact that we have a tendency to use words in an unhealthy way. He would say that we ought to also think about the ways that we can use words in positive ways, words for good. This week I read a book called Words That Hurt and Words That Heal, and the author quoted a Jewish rabbi who once said, when I was young, I admired clever people, and now that I'm old, I admire kind people. Imagine if we decided to use our words to heal, that any time we saw someone hurting, we would reach out with a few kind words. 
When we saw someone do something thoughtful and good, whether it's to us or someone else, we would praise them on the spot. What if we challenged ourselves this week, and maybe in successive weeks as well, to find five people a day that we can say something kind to, whether it's just to thank someone like the barista at Starbucks, someone we don't even know, maybe to smile at the security guard who scans your ID when you go into work, or the bag boy or bag girl that carries out your groceries at Kowalski, or someone you know well, maybe your mother-in-law who's prepared a meal, and just thank them, say something kind. And imagine if that kind of verbal kindness caught on, and not just you, but dozens, if not hundreds, or maybe even thousands of people decided to change the nature of public discourse one person at a time. Who knows? It might even put pressure on our public officials to talk more nicely to one another. I have a good friend who uh, grew up in a very difficult family. Um, his parents divorced when he was young. There were six kids, um, or seven, I can't remember now. Um, his mom worked two jobs. He was pretty much a latchkey kid, kind of raised himself. And in high school, he was a little bit aimless, but a particular teacher really connected with him. And uh, uh, he looked to this teacher almost as a surrogate father. When he graduated, this teacher wrote him a note. And in the note, he told my friend, he said, you know, I think you have incredible potential. You've got leadership ability. You're bright. You, you just, he just praised him. 15 years later, um, is when I met this friend and he pulled out his wallet and pulled out that letter. He'd been carrying it around in his wallet for 15 years. It was by that time worn and battered because it was so meaningful to him. It gave him such courage and hope that he otherwise would not have had. So we can use our words to heal. But we also need to learn to control what we say. And you say, well, is that even possible? And James's answer is yes and no. What he would say is that in and of ourselves, we can't do it, but with God's help, we can change. With God's help, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can find our hearts transformed and our words come out differently. The weekend of the 4th of July, Kathy and I spent time with some really good friends of ours, and um, the husband, Mark, and I were talking about someone we know. Uh, Mark knows him better than I do. But I have to tell you that my brief encounters with the man we were talking about have not been very positive. And so I made a few critical comments. Mark didn't really say anything, or at least he didn't immediately confront me. But in the course of our conversation, he told me some things um, that gave me a different perspective on this particular man. It didn't necessarily change my experience, and it didn't change all of the facts. But I noticed that Mark's heart toward this man was very different. It was softer than mine was. He was doing all he could to see this man and his situation in a positive light. And he had even made a commitment, and this surprised me, he'd made a commitment to encourage and support him. And I was humbled. I could see in that moment how I had been using words in destructive ways while Mark was using words to heal. One other thing I wanna mention, and that is, I think it's important, um, and that is that we have a culture that has decided that it is a virtue to say what is exactly on your mind. And so we have public and not so public personalities saying whatever they want, whenever they feel, to whomever they wish. Now it might be, it might be to unfairly insult a political opponent, to say something clever but misleading about someone, to ridicule someone with a disability, it could be all sorts of things. But somehow we say it's just great when someone just speaks their mind. To me it seems like we have two things confused. Now, all of us find it annoying when anyone, whether it's a public figure or not, someone from any walk of life, business, politics, entertainment, religion, 
uses spin to manipulate truth in some way so that even sometimes the truth gets lost or obscured. And so it's always refreshing when someone speaks the truth. But just because we dislike spin doesn't mean that we can jolly well say whatever we please. James is clear here that we need to be careful with whatever we say. It needs to not only be true, but it also needs to be kind and it needs to be necessary. The truth is that we have more control over our speech than we can imagine. James is telling us that we have a moral obligation. We have a moral obligation to control what comes out of our mouths. And if we can't do that, we really ought to seek professional help. Well, James chapter three isn't only the only place in this little book in the New Testament that James talks about the importance of words because early in the book, he includes a little statement in chapter one, verse 26. Here's what he says. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Now, to be honest, I've really never liked the word religious. Um, The religious people I have known in my life come off as self-righteous, a little hypocritical, It always seems to me that they're looking down on others and um, sometimes they come off as obnoxious and fake. So I have an occupational hazard and that is that I meet people and they ask me what I do and um, I tell them I'm a pastor and the immediate conclusion most of them reach is that I'm somehow religious. Since I don't like the word, that's really a problem. But James here is concerned about the use of the word in two ways. It turns out that I think he has similar concerns in the way he writes these words about the kind of religious people I've already mentioned. The word religious here could be translated as pious. So we could translate it, those who consider themselves pious. And what he's describing is the sort of person who focuses on being absolutely scrupulous about the outward observance of religious practices in order to make themselves seem devout to others. What's interesting here is he isn't saying that other people see these people as religious, but they themselves are trying to make others notice their piety. So are they or are they not religious? Now, in one sense, I would say, if James were here tonight, he would say, I really don't have a problem with religious people, people who revere God, people who make attending church each Sunday a priority, people who read their Bibles regularly and pray. All these things are good, and people who do these things often are the sort of people who live lives that please God. But, he says, the test of piety, the test of whether you are truly religious or not, comes in what you say, if you're careful and controlling in what you say. So bluntly, he says, you can do all the religious things that you want, but if you can't control your tongue, it's a sham. So you may think you're religious, but ultimately, you're only deceiving yourselves. So here's the deal. If we just go on what we've already said, you'd say, boy, James is pretty negative. But I think you can also flip much of what he said to say that our speech can not only be a curse because we often say the wrong thing, but it can also be a gift. So we can imagine for a moment just what it would be like if we would use our words to heal, not to harm, to build up, not to tear down, to bring joy, not discouragement, that we use our words to inspire others to greatness, that we lift the spirits of the discouraged, give words of wisdom to the confused and words of hope to those searching for God. We can even pray for someone asking God to bless them. The power of words can be used for good or they can be used for bad. They can be used to lie and manipulate and abuse or to tell the truth, to heal, to help, to encourage. The litmus test of our faith comes in the words that we speak. We demonstrate our faith by showing that Jesus Christ has transformed our hearts 
and that what comes out is a result of being remade in his image. Let's pray. Father, these are challenging words and all of us can think of times, probably even recently, when we have said things that we ought not to have. Father, I pray that you would first humble us, each one of us, that you would help us to understand the ways in which we perhaps have been careless about what we say. And we would ask that you would transform us, recognizing that we cannot do this on our own, that we need your spirit's power, that we need hope, and we need healing of our own, that our hearts might be remade into your image so that we might be people who speak with words of grace and hope, with words of comfort and encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.